Hi folks, Bill Michaelek here. It may not sound like it, but you are listening to The Field Guides. But this month's episode, it's going to be a little different. Now Steve and I normally research some nature topic and then record an episode somewhere out in the field, but when it came time to record this episode, it was August. Steve and I normally go camping at this time of year. So this time around, we decided to invite you along with us. We spent an entire day exploring this beautiful, incredible natural island, but I don't want to give too much away. Just know that we recorded a lot of material, and I had to edit it down, so although we normally don't do any kind of voiceover or narration on our episodes, for this one, Steve and I decided it was necessary to give the show more of a flow. So here we go. I'm excited. We're taking you to Valcor Island. I think you'll enjoy it. Hello and welcome to the Field Guides. This is a special episode because this time we are on the road. Why don't you tell everybody where we are, Steve? Oh, we're on Valcor Island. So right uh, between Vermont and New York, yep. on Lake Champlain. What is that? The eighth largest freshwater body in North I have America? no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I know we are on the largest island on Lake Champlain. <laughs> no, no we're not. On the New York side of it, it's the largest <laughs> island. But in all of Lake Champlain, it's the fourth largest. So, uh, like Steve said, we are in New York. Lake Champlain is divided kind of down the middle. One side's Vermont, one side's New York. And Valcor Island, the island that we're on, is on the New York side. And listen into the background right now, folks. Two beautiful osprey are just going at it. And by going at it... <laughs> vocalizing. I mean vocalizing, yeah. So, Valcor Island, Steve and I decided to come out here because we'd heard reports of rare plants. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to poach them, actually, and bring them home. <laughs> sure, make some money for the podcast. Absolutely right? not. <laughs> Someone just turned the podcast off right there, and now they think it's okay to poach plants. <laughs> I'm embarrassed of myself, really. (laughs) So we came out to the Adirondack Mountains in northeast New York State uh, last summer. You remember we ran into a fellow from the Adirondack Botanical Society. And he gave us uh, some hints about Valcor Island. He had come out with his group in June to see some of the orchids that were here. Ram's Head, Lady Lady Slipper, Slipper, yeah. Yeah. And he just was gushing about the plants that were here. So we are not here in June. Yeah, so we decided to come. In Outside of the flowering season. <laughs> we've been busy. So uh, yeah. we usually go camping in August, and we figured, hey, why don't we head up to Valcor Island? So we've been camping here. We paddled over the three-quarter mile paddle yesterday. It took a while to get for Steve to paddle across the water because there were so many aquatic plants that he had to identify. Yeah, well, they were all torn up by boats, but it was still fun getting pieces of them and yeah. identifying them. We've been exploring the island a little bit. Uh, right now we are actually near a historic lighthouse, and the lighthouse is probably about 50 yards up ahead, but next to the lighthouse is a metal tower that was constructed, I think, in the around 1920, 1930, and it basically took the place of the lighthouse. Mm-hmm. So they had this metal tower that had an unmanned light, and the osprey have built their nest right in the top of the tower. I think it was actually purposely done for osprey. Do the, oh, yeah, I think they actually set it up, uh, and you'll see it even along like the east coast. They'll put platforms on top of any type of pole, and especially when I was driving down to the Outer Banks a few years ago, just every single post had a platform, and there were so many osprey osprey nests. So osprey, if you're not familiar, they're a fish-eating hawk. Uh, Would you say similar in size to a red tail, probably bigger? A little bigger than a red tail. tail. Even, I mean, the wingspan should be a lot more than a a red tail. I would think so, yeah. Oh, yeah. So they're um, white, but then they have black wings, uh, black bar across the chest. I would say dark brown. Dark, yeah, that's true. It's a dark brown. You know, because for the the first few times I saw them, you know, years ago, I just had it in my head that it was black. It sounds It sounds like you're really setting yourself up for an excuse. <laughs> well, I am. Yeah. <laughs> but then... Just just say you were wrong and move on. 
I'm used to doing that. It's okay. <laughs> I'm just explaining. Yeah. So a number of years after I was introduced to the Osprey, someone described them as brown. I'm like, no, they're black. Yeah. And we kind of had a similar exchange to what we're having now. Right. Uh, the Osprey that are up there, it looks like there's a male and a female. Two adults, yeah. And I did want to point out, as you were talking about the platform up there, the tower wasn't originally constructed with Osprey in mind. No, it was yes. repurposed for Osprey. Right, because yeah. in the 20s and 30s, they weren't thinking about Osprey. But do you know... Why the, you know why the Osprey numbers tumbled, right? Was it DDT? Yeah, the it was same, DDT. Okay, yeah. So just like the... Bald Eagle. Bald Eagle, mm. Peregrine Falcon. DDT got into the food chain and then affected them, so they were left with very thin-shelled eggs. Yes. So populations dropped. But now the Osprey have nicely recovered. Seems like I, I'm seeing them more and more everywhere I go. Yeah, but maybe it's just because you know them now. Oh, yeah. I also have that filter for Osprey. You know, I, I know what I'm looking for. Okay, so I guess the purpose of this episode is that we don't want to do anything too structured. We did a little research on just the island in general, nothing right. too, too in-depth. But we just sort of want to take you guys with us and, uh, as, we and yeah, as we explore the island, identify flora and fauna and whatever else we end up seeing or, or that we find interesting. So sure. that's sort of the whole purpose of this episode, just sort of a free-form episode. Yeah, we and go. we hope it works out. <laughs> <laughs> and if it doesn't work out, we won't even release it. And you'll never know. <laughs> All right. So All right, cool. Go. Before starting off, however, Steve and I decided to share some info about the island's size and use. The island is how big? <laughs> 1,100 acres. 1,100 acres. At least that's what I read. There's some debate in yeah. the literature. Right. Because uh, you got like 984. 84, but that was Wikipedia. Like that. Yeah. <laughs> Which isn't such a bad source, but know, don't, don't base everything on yeah. Wikipedia. <laughs> but our New York State's Department of Conservation, they listed as 1,100 acres. Right. Um, so it now is part of the Adirondack Park, mm-hmm. and it's zoned as a, a primitive area. So you can't build houses here. Uh, pretty much just camping is allowed. Right. Um, I don't believe even bikes are allowed on the on the property. Oh wow! So, yeah. and there's this structure, the the lighthouse that we're standing next to, and then there's one old stone house. Yeah. Uh, but those are the only two structures now. Yeah. So there are campsites. There's an eight mile loop trail. Yes. That goes around, and then there's two trails that cut across the interior. Well, of the if it's not an eight mile loop trail, it's at least eight mile of shore. That's right. Okay. Yeah. So there's yeah. eight mile of, sh- of shoreline. I bet there's more than eight miles of trail. Well, they, they cut I was, through. Because yeah, I wasn't including the... There's two trails that cut through okay. the inside. And just to give you a picture of, again, the size of the island, it's about two miles long and about one mile wide. Where we're about three quarters of a mile from the mainland of New York. Like, we can see the boat launch from where we're standing right oh, now yeah. across the water. So they don't let you establish any type of house on the island. Right. But you can establish a line of boats that are oh tied together <laughs> yeah as steve and i were we're at a table full of booze yeah botanizing <laughs> yesterday we ran that seems to be what most people seem yeah. to use this for bill and i are in all of our gear in our books and there's people in their bathing suits walking by yeah. us are you guys playing pokemon go yeah no <laughs> no we're no. looking at plants it's kind of like pokemon go but we, did, we, we did have someone invite us for shish kebabs oh yeah that was nice of them <laughs> that was very nice all right so what do you say we find some plants yeah let's do that on the way to find some plants, Steve and I spotted one of the island's four-legged fauna, the leopard frog. Now, the most common leopard frog species in New York State is the northern leopard frog, Ranapipians. We were hoping, though, with uh, the rarity of some of the species on the island, that this might be the southern leopard frog, a species of special concern in New York State. So, tough to find. But the southern leopard frog, in the middle of its eardrum, there is a white spot. And the ones that we were seeing definitely did not have that white spot so we had to be happy with 
seeing lots of northern leopard frogs. And walking along the paths during the summer, visitors to Valcor can't avoid seeing these frogs. Steve and I were continually startling them off the path whenever we were close to water. Seeing these frogs was a treat for us, since at home in western New York, green frogs and bullfrogs are in much greater abundance. Steve and I also discussed some of the human history of Alcor, but to keep this episode to reasonable length, we encourage you to look into the rich human history of this place on your own. Now, we're not yeah. going to delve too much into the history, but if you are a history buff, uh, listeners out there, I would say look into the history here. Super important for the Revolutionary War. Yeah, because oh, uh, Lake yeah. Champlain as a border between New York and Vermont and... Canada to the north. And Canada to the north. But it was also a way to travel from the St. Lawrence Valley, St. Lawrence River Valley, to the Hudson River Valley. Right. So it was a major uh, lane of travel for, oh, yeah. during the Revolutionary this is This is the Champlain Valley, mm-hmm. and it's pretty nice because to our east, we have the Green Mountains, which in are Vermont. beautiful to look at in yeah. Vermont. And then to the west, we have the Adirondack Mountains, which are beautiful to look at yeah. to the west. Yeah. <laughs> so um, it's just really cool. We're just in this little um, you know, valley area, and oh, it's so cool. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. And the, the neat thing about this island here, there are a bunch of different plant communities here. Like where mm-hmm. we landed, uh, our campsite was kind of just up above the water. We had to scramble up some rocks to get up to our campsite. But the trees all around our campsite are white cedar, Yeah. which is you know, kind of rare. We're in this little white cedar forest. Right. But we're, through our research, we're finding that there's a bunch of other little communities. Right. And two of the communities are white cedar communities. One's a white cedar swamp. That's where the great blue heron rookery is. Right. Which is actually the largest heron rookery in New York. In New York State. And one of the largest in the Northeast in general. Yeah. That's kind of one of our goals today. We'd like to get to the rookery. Right. It's August, so they're probably finished nesting by now. What? what are you smiling about? No, I was just smiling that this morning, uh, everything that we are telling each other, because sometimes we talk about uh, what we're going to say a little bit before yeah. we start recording, and, and, and Bill was like, oh yeah, in the, in the northern section of the park, there's the rookery. I was like, it's the southeast sector of the park, but do you want to say what the confusion was? Sure. Again, I was confused, as usual. Right. If, if only they said arborvitae yeah. instead of uh, northern. That's the problem with common names. Yeah. It, I brought out my literature, and I said, look, it says in the northern white cedar swamp <laughs> and then i realized oh northern white cedar that's the name of the tree now it's now if it's a northern northern white cedar <laughs> right so i realized oh it's not the northern section of the island uh but my point in starting that conversation was i would encourage people to look up information about valcor island maybe, maybe we'll post some links yeah in the the episode description so people can delve into the history of the island right one thing i did notice after really starting my career as a naturalist is that everything became so much more interesting when I knew the plant life there or when I identified plants around. So this isn't just a little hiking trail to go down. It's like I'm seeing things that I'm big fans of everywhere around, you right. know. And we're finding plants that we've right. never seen before. Oh, yeah. So we're, we're finding, oh, speaking of that, there's about, what, 15 rare plants on this, 16 rare plants on this yeah. island. Um, there plants. used to be seven more, but they haven't been found, uh, they haven't been relocated in, on any in plants recent studies. Yeah. yeah. And Maybe so, we'll find one. Yeah, oh, that'd be great. <laughs> so apparently there are a lot of a lot of rare plants here. I mean, there's a lot of different types of ecosystems here, so it's really exciting to be here. Just, but also history is similar to that too, in a way. Like, I'm no history buff, but anytime I find out something new about a place, it becomes that much more exciting sure. too. Because, you know, I really like to focus on the natural stuff, but sometimes every now and then I find out something that some a group of people did at one point. I'm like, oh, that's actually pretty cool. Right. Oh, no. <laughs> that has nothing to do with... I'm distracted um, from plants. Yeah, yeah, flora and fauna. Yeah, and it's not just plants. <laughs> Humans, it's not just plants. the ultimate fauna. <laughs> That's yeah. some people, yeah. 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 But you like insects, too. 
<laughs> fauna, isn't it? Whoa, is yeah. fa- insects fauna? Yeah, but we were just talking oh, okay. about plants. So. Uh, <laughs> but I was going to mention one of the, the plants that we came across that you and I have never seen before. Just this morning, we found dull indigo bush. Oh, beautiful little uh, resin blisters yeah. all over it. On all the, leaves the leaves and on the seed pods. And on the seed pods, very cool. And we'll post we... some pictures with that. That yep. was, I loved that. That was so good. And yesterday, we found a type of gentian. If you're not right. familiar with the gentian, it's a... It's like a medium-sized wildflower. The flower heads are like an inch and a half long. Mm-hmm. But how would you By describe them? By the way, them? the opened gentians, like if, you, if you're at a computer, you should look up what a fringed gentian looks like. Mm-hmm. Or we'll post some pictures because I have some that I found out west. But these are closed gentians, so they kind of look like, like a narrow football. They're a nice bluish purple, like what? definitely more bluish than purple, but they stay closed. And it um, looks like a flower that is yet to open. Right. But that's it. So earlier in the trip, we found a closed gentian uh, down by the first campsite before we got to Valcor. Right. And then after we got here, we found the fringed closed gentian. I wasn't ready to accept that it was the fringed closed gentian because in our field guide, in our Newcomb's Wildflower Guide, it did say it's rare in New England. So I kind of had it in my head. It's highly unlikely that this was what it would be. But Steve kept pointing out, well, look at the pattern of the fringe. Look how deeply cleft Right, uh, the top of the flower is when the flower is closed. You can actually see it almost. It, the very tip of it is a bit fringed, and if you've seen a closed gentian before, they come together in like this really nice little swirl pattern. There's no fringe at all. It's like this very There's clean. A little no, fringe. not in the closed okay. gentian. No, I have a picture of it. I have it right on my camera. No. There, there is no fringe. It is a beautiful, beautiful flower. We saw it at the last campsite. We did, but that was one reason I was thinking it was just closed gentian. Because there is a little bit of fringe. Uh, Look. Those pictures are deceiving. <laughs> Look, do you see the little bit of fringe right there? Oh, but you don't you can't see it when the flower's closed. Oh, you okay. have to you have to you have to um, unroll the petals. You have to unroll the fused petals in order to see that fringe. But when the flower's closed, the way it's displaying naturally, you cannot see that fringe on a closed gentian. All right, I'll but on the that. fringed closed gentian, you can absolutely see that um, there is the fringe there sticking up. Okay. Yeah. Cool. All right, time to move on. Besides the abundant leopard frogs, another resident on the island we couldn't avoid seeing was poison ivy. Oh, one thing that's worth pointing out is that we are surrounded by poison ivy. Yeah. Toxicodendron radicans. When we were collecting some sticks last night for a fire, (laughs) I had to be extra careful, and then sometimes I would drag a stick. You know, just on the side of the road is poison ivy everywhere. So if a stick was dragging on the side of the little path... Oh, wait, is that the Aquilegia again? I think it is. Huh, growing out here. Wild columbine. Columbine. But I was saying, just having the sticks drag through the poison ivy, I was afraid to break those sticks up. (laughs) Because they could have the urushiol on them. Urushiol is the volatile oil in poison ivy that causes contact dermatitis in humans. And as we continued down the path, we couldn't help discussing poison ivy further. Like, I feel like I always need to point out to people when it's mentioned that you can touch or brush against poison ivy and not get poison ivy. You have to get the juice or the sap from the plant. That's what I mentioned before, the urushiol. Yeah, yeah, the oil has to come into contact with your skin, so it has to come from a broken stem, a broken branch, a broken leaf. We've probably brushed against tons of poison ivy, but as long as you're not getting the sap on you, you're okay. Man, I just can't get enough of these sounds of nature. <laughs> They're incredible. Uh, the sound of a motor. Yeah. Oh, oh there, ooh, there we go. I wonder if he did that for our benefit. <laughs> he, he overheard us. <laughs> I doubt it. All right, so we are obviously down near the water now. 
Yeah. And uh, there's a bunch of boats. We're next to a little bay. Oh, just one more thing about poison ivy. It's something that we've seen yesterday and not yet today, but a lot of plants are in fruit right now. Well, okay. I say a lot, but <laughs> a small percentage. It seems like a lot of plants are in fruit right now, which is pretty cool. Uh, they have nice little white veined fruits. Poison ivy you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah, well, when they first come out, they're green. And then... Don't they have lines on them? That doesn't sound right. <laughs> Maybe. May I, I thought I thought I remember. No, they might when they're in that I kind of. I like, don't get too close to those fruits. All right. <laughs> when they're in that kind of tannish phase. Yeah. Because uh, eventually they're going to turn white. We were talking today that if something has a white fruit, chances are pretty good you want to. That stay Bill away. should eat it. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> what were you going to say? That you should not eat it. Oh, same here. That. Yeah. What did you say? <laughs> Because poison ivy has white fruits, poison sumac has white fruits. Right. Doll's eyes. Doll's eyes, yeah. But we did find a plant yesterday with ha it had white berries, and I did something I shouldn't have done. I did eat it. He ate a whole handful of them. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm still here. He's like, the first one didn't taste like wintergreen, but maybe the next one. It didn't make me go blind. Yeah. yeah we thought it was a, a type of cranberry, wild cranberry, that if it was, it would have tasted like wintergreen. So I... Uh, I took a dangerous step for science, but it was <laughs> not, not for science at all. You didn't use the scientific method <laughs> in the least, but you did. What did I do? You were using me. I observed you. It was an observational study on my part. If <laughs> Bill dies, yes, that's right. <laughs> I made a prediction, and you didn't die. So now we know. <laughs> Eureka! <laughs> but we did look it up, and we did find that the name of that plant was snowberry. Snowberry. It, okay. it does have white berries. Not poisonous. So that's why I'm still here. Yeah. Oh, boy. All right, let's move on. We moved on. And further down the trail, we found, unfortunately, the beautiful but invasive flower, Purpaloostrife, Lithrum salicaria. Thankfully, there were only a few individuals, at least for the time being. And a few minutes later, we found a different wildflower species, this one with strange striped berries. Okay, so we just sat down to identify some starry-flowered Solomon seal. Is that it? Starry-flowered? Star-flowered Solomon seal. All right. So if people aren't familiar with it, Solomon seal, it's a member of the lily family, right? I think so, yeah. Yeah, a member of the lily family. Yeah. And the two most people think of, if they're familiar with it, is Solomon seal and then false Solomon seal. Right. So this is a woodland plant typically, and uh, in the fall it'll get clusters of red berries, the false Solomon seal. Right. So the Solomon seal, just to quickly describe that one, underneath each leaf, it'll have a flower. Right. And so the berries develop underneath the plant, where the false Solomon seal, um, all the flowers and berries are clustered at the very tip of the plant. And so that would be the big difference between the two, just the, the very obvious difference. Um, and we were just looking at the starry, fl uh, sorry, the star-flowered Solomon seal. There you go. And it has these really interesting striped berries, these these black stripes and sort of like a yellowish green or it's sort of a dull yellowish green color yeah yeah but those black stripes on the berries those are i haven't seen that before right yeah so that's very uh indicative of this species right and i'm glad we saw these i'm glad we were talking about stripes again <laughs> because right where we sat down there's actually more poison ivy and they do have a bunch of berries on them and now that we're looking closer um, I was technically wrong. I was sort of, I was, I was being very general when I was speaking, but what I was imagining was sort of pigment stripes, where there are stripes on the poison ivy berries, uh, berries or the poison ivy fruits, because I don't know if they're a berry or not. True. Yeah. So uh, on the poison ivy fruits, there are stripes, but they're more indents than pigment. Yeah. So that's a bit of a difference. And there's a lot in there. How many would you say? There's 
there's a cluster. More than 10. Yeah, and they're small. They're less than an eighth of an inch. Right. Uh, so these are tiny fruits. They're kind of hidden in under the leaves. And mm -hmm. right now, did you already say they're like a light green color? No, I didn't say the color. Yeah, so they will eventually be turning white, though. Right. They're, right now, they're just a little bit more dull than the leaves themselves. Right. Yeah. And, and I don't know if we mentioned this earlier, we may have, but um, we're surrounded all the time on this island by poison ivy. <laughs> yeah. Everywhere we go, poison ivy's everywhere. <laughs> and yeah. in my research, I found that when poison ivy was mentioned uh, on different websites, especially uh, state conservation department websites, it was often included in the noxious weeds department or the, uh, or the webpage or the harmful plants webpage, right. uh, which I feel is a little unfair because while poison ivy is definitely detrimental to humans and that it can cause dermatitis yeah it's a very valuable wildlife plant uh, over 40 or 50 species of birds feed on it mammals feed on it regularly it really only impacts people gives us a reaction and it is native right it is native yeah and I've heard that pigs can also get poison ivy <laughs> and I have read some reports of some dogs and cats getting it I haven't heard that dogs and cats get it I heard that they get the oils on their fur and then when you bring them in back into your house then right you can get poison ivy even though you never came in contact with the plant as i've had people tell me oh i can get poison ivy just by standing near it and that is not true it has to be contact dermatitis your skin has to come in contact with the oil so what typically happens is they may not realize they have the oil on their shoes right. or on a pet and then later on when they touch that surface then there's the contact right right yeah. but it's, you got to be in, in contact with it and I also saw it on one website listed as an invasive species, but yeah. I would not consider it an invasive species. Whenever I've run into poison ivy, even when it's abundant like it is here at Belcor, right. there's still a lot of other plants. It's right here. It's mixed in with all the, the star-flowered salamence seal. Right. It's definitely not preventing. But, but invasive isn't a character of whether it's native or not, right? So Correct. it's just invasive. You can have an invasive... Native. Yeah, like an aggressive native. Right, because black yeah. locust trees... They can be invasive in certain situations. Right. And they're a native tree. Yeah. So just because it's invasive, it still may be native or it may be exotic. Right. And, yeah. I, and we were walking before and we've seen carpets of ivy, or poison ivy, and yeah. it's it did still look like other things were growing there. And sure. it, it didn't seem like an unhealthy woods. There's a huge understory. I mean, it's a really dense understory. So right. it seems relatively healthy. Yeah. So you just got to be careful. Yeah. Whenever we're sitting down, we're taking a look around and making sure we're not sitting right on poison ivy. Right. Holy cow. Let's get out of here. This is like Boat City. Yeah. How many boats would you say? More than 30? Oh, definitely. Holy cow. A lot of boats here. Yeah. All right. Let's get out of here. All right. By this point, we had recorded 75 species since landing on the island. In the interest of time, we weren't stopping to an attempt an idea on everything we saw. But at the rate we were going, we wouldn't be back to camp until well after dark. We had just come to a side trail leading to something called Paradise Bay. I wanted to keep going on the main trail, but Steve couldn't resist being sidetracked. Okay, we just think we saw either a redhead or a common merganser, so we're trying to check it out. Oh, okay. Oh, there's a whole bunch of them. Here, hold the mic. Got it. So it's a medium to large duck, blackish grayish colors on most of the body, but the head is a rusty brown. Steve okay. just took a picture, zooming in. Kind of looks merganserish to me, because yeah. the redhead is a really rounded... Yeah, and look at that and look bill. Look at that bill. Yeah. What is it, Mergus serrater for the... Do you know what that means? Or do you know what that goes? serrated teeth. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They have some pretty cool Not teeth. teeth but... yeah. yeah. Just a serrated part of the bill. Yeah. Oh, hopefully I don't so die is... going down here. 
This is part of the island called Paradise Bay. And this is actually the one bay that we've been in where there are no boats. Yeah, this is the first nice secluded bay, and it's beautiful. We'll share some pictures of it. But I think it's because the it's surrounded by rock cliffs. Yeah. Yeah. Sheer cliffs, too. We can't even make it to that other beach. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's just a nice pebbly shore. Yeah. yeah. Paradise Bay was beautiful. A beach composed of big round cobbles, rubbed round and smoothed by the action of the waves. We climbed on the cliffs and explored a small cave, but we didn't linger too long. We were soon back on the main trail, following the perimeter of Valcor. All right, well, we just left Paradise Bay, and we just came across a star flower. Yep, so this is a plant of the woodland floor. It has a whirl of leaves, six to nine, right? Mm-hmm. And some of the leaves are a little longer than others. We were trying to decide whether this was star flower or... Cuc uh, wild cucumber root. Right, or yeah. Indian cucumber root. Oh, Indian cucumber root, right. sorry. But then we remembered that Indian cucumber root, when it flowers, the flower develops almost on like a second level. It sends up yeah. a flowering stalk. An umbrella on top of an umbrella. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, where a star flower just sends out a small white flower above the leaves. Yeah, star flower is one of my favorite ones that we see every single year when we come up to the Adirondacks. And I usually consider it more of a, like a higher elevation species. And every year we say, is that star flower or Indian cucumber? <laughs> yeah, and I bet, there's, I bet there's some plant people out there that are like, why would you confuse those? But come on, you can see it deep down. You can see the confusion oh, yeah. just for a second. <laughs> and we've just realized that we've been out for six hours. And we've only covered about one-third of the distance we need to travel today. <laughs> yeah, we keep identifying plants off mic that we're like, this isn't interesting enough to put on there, and yeah. exploring caves and <laughs> just relaxing. But what, one thing we do want to do is get to the heron rookery. Yeah. Because even if the herons aren't there, the, uh, the nests themselves, uh, we'd like to see those and describe those for the people listening. Yeah. All right. All right, well, we'll chime in again when uh, we find something interesting. We picked up the pace at this point, now stopping only occasionally. We did identify a shorebird. It took us a while, but we figured out it was a lesser yellow legs. We found some heart-shaped hoof prints, our first evidence of deer on the island. And we also came across the eerie cluster of white berries that belonged to a plant known as doll's eyes, or white baneberry, Actea acapota. By the time we made it to the vicinity of the heron rookery, we had recorded over 100 species. Okay, we think we just got to the southeast tip of the island, and so now we're generally in the area that you'd expect the rookery to be. So just a couple points. I think we may have said a couple of these things about the rookery early on, but this is the largest rookery in New York State, and it's, did you know this, Bill? It's the third largest in the Great Lakes region. Oh. Yeah, so it's up there. In 2004, there was 416 active nests. In 2001, that was actually the peak number of nests that were active. 552 active nests. Wow. They told us that the northern white cedar swamp, this is where we would find the rookery, but we're not really in a swamp area right now. No. So I'm I think. Hoping as we head up the trail, it'll become more swampy. Now, did we say what kind of rookery it is? Oh, a great blue heron, Ardea herodius. Yeah. I think it has something, something hero, I don't remember. <laughs> the heron hero. <laughs> We scoured the southeast corner of that island. We couldn't be sure if the trail we were on, called the Perimeter Trail, cut through the rookery or not, so we kept making forays off-trail, heading inland, searching for any sign of the herons 
or their rookery. All right, so what we're doing right now is we're still looking for the rookery. We are off trail. Off trail. Now, you shouldn't always look for rookeries, and they actually say in one of the pamphlets that we got that the rookery should not be disturbed between May and August because that's when breeding's occurring. March. March and August. March through August. It's like the end of August. <laughs> well, it's mid-August. We haven't with, seen a single herring yet. With so. conditions this year, yeah. I mean, I'm betting they aren't breeding right now. Oh, it goes further downhill over there. Looks pretty dense in that direction. Yeah. I mean, the nest should not be hard to miss. <laughs> or They should be hard to miss. They should be hard to miss. That's what I mean. You're tired. It's okay. Yeah. Uh, there's a heron rookery in Iroquois back home. The Iroquois National Wildlife Refuge. Yeah. And that one's incredible. Have yeah. you been to that one? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Just huge nest. Tons of them up in the tree. Like a city in the trees. Yeah. yeah. All right. Want to keep moving? Yeah. Which way do you want to go? North or west? North. All right. Eventually, we reached the western side of the island, so we knew the rookery wasn't along the trail. As we headed north along Valcour's western shore, we came to a trail that cut back across the island, and we decided to take it, hoping that maybe this trail would intersect the rookery. But after another mile of hiking... All right, we're at Smuggler's Harbor. We didn't find it! <laughs> well, we tried. Yeah. A for effort. I think so. Yeah. I mean, we really did try a whole lot. Yeah. We even came back to a place we've already been. <laughs> oh, Smuggler's Harbor. Uh, so I think what we need to do is come back when breeding season is in full swing. And uh, I know they're pretty noisy when they're breeding. Right. It'd be hard to so. miss them. All right. Uh, well, I guess we should head back to camp and then wrap up the podcast. And, uh, call it a night. It. Yeah, I'm exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Let's do it. All right. Let's head back. Yeah. <laughs> we are back from Valcor Island, and we are now in Syracuse, New York. Yeah, yeah. we just ate at Stronghearts. Yes, we should give a sh shout out to Stronghearts. So anytime we're passing through this area, we stop at Stronghearts Cafe. They're a vegan restaurant. Mm -hmm. uh, this is appropriate to mention because our last episode was all about uh, eating vegan. Right. All right, so as far as the, the hike we did on right. Valcor, unfortunately... We didn't see the Heron Rookery. We looked all over for it. <laughs> But it didn't it didn't work out. But no. we did get to see a great egret. Yeah, so that was good. Yeah. A bright white close relative of the great blue heron. Right, it was yeah. our, uh, what do you call it? Oh, I can't think of the word. When Second place prize. <laughs> <laughs> Consolation prize. Consolation prize. Yeah. Uh, and we did get a good number of species. So we encountered 118 species that we recorded. And I do want to mention <laughs> that we completely ignored... To our best ability, we basically ignored everything in the composite family. Right. Or the aster family, as, yeah. as some of us say. We, so we didn't look at any of the golden rods, referenced episode one. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we didn't really focus on many other asters. We just wanted to focus on stuff that we right. might not see at home. Right. Yeah. And I don't think we told people that last night when we got back after our hike, because right now as we're recording this, this is Sunday, uh, and the last time we talked to you folks on mic, it was Saturday. At about 7.30 on Saturday. That's when we finished up our hike. So when we got into camp, uh, the people at the campsite next to us, they said that they heard there was a storm coming in. It was already pretty windy. Mm -hmm. And we were feeling a little nervous. We were in kayaks, and we did not want to, on Sunday morning, 
have to paddle across the open waters of Lake Champlain right. in high winds. Early on Saturday, we were seeing white caps on a lot of those yeah. waves, and that's not something we wanted to do in the kayak. So we decided to head out. Well, Bill approached me at about 7.45 last night, and, uh, and he's like, do you think we could pack up and get back to the mainland before, uh, before the sun goes down? Which is like around 8.30. Right, and I enticed Steve by saying, I'll pay for the hotel room. <laughs> yeah, because I'm like, I cannot afford a hotel room right now. But I didn't quite think it through because we paddled across the waters. It was a little scary, a little wavy, mm -hmm. but we made it across. But trying to find a hotel room. And then began the, the hour and a half to two hour search for a hotel room. In the Adirondack yeah. Mountains on a Saturday night, virtually impossible. We are also looking for camping sites, but yeah. all they filled. They were all full. Everything's Everything filled. Everything was full. Yeah. So we managed to get a relatively cheap room at a, a kind of a scary motel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but we were, so, we were so tired, we didn't care. Right, right. Yeah. So we woke up early this morning, uh, and just to kind of cap off our little adventure, we headed up Whiteface Mountain. Right, the fifth tallest high peak in the Adirondacks. Yeah, the, yeah. the fifth tallest mountain in New York State. Oh, yeah, yeah right. So some great views from up there. Yep. Uh, we'll be posting some pictures. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. All right, so before we wrap up, we want to give a big thanks to friend of the field guides, Jerry Thurn. Mm -hmm. Why? He recently emailed us to let us know that we were rambling a bit about Celsius and Fahrenheit. And In one of our just, episodes. It just got a little convoluted, and, and he just suggested that maybe from now on we just stick to one you know, temperature measurement system, and we just go with that one. And I, we completely agree. Totally. We, it was just a little thing we hadn't thought of. Bill and I didn't talk about it beforehand, so you know, one of us is saying like Celsius, the other one is saying Fahrenheit, and then even... I'm sure one of us said both Celsius and Fahrenheit, you know, and, and it does get a little confusing. So I think from now on, we're just going to stick to one. We haven't totally decided which one yet. Should we follow uh, what everyone else in the world is doing and Celsius. go with Celsius? Or because the vast majority of our, our audience is in America, should we stick to Fahrenheit? We don't know yet. We don't know. Being who you are, we'll spend way too much time debating it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Off mic. Yes, <laughs> yeah. exactly right. So thanks to Jerry Thurn for giving us our, our first listener mail. Right, and if anyone else has their own listener mail to send in, whether it's an idea for the show or, or maybe a way we can make the show better or just a complaint or you guys want to troll us or something, that's sure. fine. Uh, we're at thefieldguidespodcast at gmail.com. Yep, so you can drop us an email that way. You can always also contact, contact us through our Facebook page as well. Absolutely right, yeah. yeah. And the two other things we want to mention, uh, we do have a Twitter feed now, so uh, please follow us there. It's at fieldguidespod. Uh huh. And then we also have set up an Instagram account. So that's Instagram.com slash Field Guides Podcast. And then the final thing we want to mention, I'll let Steve intro. Right. So this we recently. Yeah, this is big. So we recently set up a Patreon account. So Patreon is a site where you can support content creators. Many people who listen to the show may know that websites are expensive to keep up, we pay month to month. And just general cost for the show. It's not free, folks. It's, it's not free. <laughs> and, you know, Bill and I, we do this show for ourselves, but it is nice to get the information out there, and we want to make sure we can keep doing it. And if you like the show, if you want to support us, if you want to invest in a better show, this, this is the best way to do it. That's right, because people have said before that um, sometimes the sound quality, they'd like that to improve. Well, well better it, mics. That's right. Yeah. If we could afford better mics sometime in the future... Even if Bill and I had our own mics or something, that might help a lot. Right. So um, Patreon is 
donations to Patreon right. is one way that we could do that. If we could just hire someone, like if we made nothing and we could just hire someone to do all of our social media stuff, uh, I'd be the happiest person ever. Or the editing. Yeah, or the editing. Or we the just editing. get an editor. Yeah. No, that'll never happen. We'll never make enough money to get an editor or a social media person. So if you'd like to make a donation uh, to our Patreon page, where do people mm -hmm. need to go? So they go to patreon.com slash the field guides. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and then we do want to mention that any donations that come in, we're going to be taking 10% of those donations and sending them to kiva.com. Right. And we specifically want to invest that money. Well, it's not an investment. It's a loan. It's a micro loan. So what is Kiva? Just in case people don't so, know. So kiva.com, you can essentially search for projects that you want to lend to based on the category. So we're specifically looking at environmental projects. We're focused on lending to developing countries. Yeah, projects uh, in developing countries. Right. So yeah. if you make a donation to our Patreon page, you're not only going to be supporting this podcast, you're also going to be supporting environmental projects in a developing country. All right, folks. So I think that's everything. Uh, we want to thank you for listening. Check out uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all those things. And we'll see you next time. Next time with a regular episode. That's right. <laughs>